The following interview was recorded live at the North American Menopause Society, or NAMS, annual meeting. Founded in 1989, NAMS is North America's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the health and quality of life of all women during midlife and beyond through an understanding of menopause and healthy aging. Hello, this is Dr. Prathima Seti, and I am your host for this segment on ReachMD. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ethel Cyrus. Dr. Cyrus is an endocrinologist and Madeline C. Stabile Professor of Medicine at the Columbia University Medical Center. She is also Director of the Osteoporosis Center for the Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Cyrus will be speaking with us on the bare bones of osteoporosis management. Dr. Cyrus, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Cyrus, as I understand it, osteoporosis is a disorder of reduced bone strength associated with a high risk for fractures. How does a practitioner diagnose and, and find osteoporosis in their patients in the office? I think the first thing one has to say is that practitioners need to make a screening for osteoporosis a routine phenomenon in virtually any 50-year-old woman or man whom they see, you have to start thinking about risk factors for future fracture, and you have to start thinking about how to at least talk with patients about their risk when women get to menopause and when men reach the age of 50. Osteoporosis is the cause of one out of two women fracturing in that third of life after menopause, and something like one of three or four men also will fracture in their years after age 50. So I think the first thing that one has to do is look for risk factors when people get to this age. And one of the most important questions is to ask the patient, have you had a recent fracture? A fracture is a red flag that there may be reason to be concerned about future fractures as well. Bone density testing is a very useful way to assess whether or not somebody is at risk. And we believe, and these are guidelines from the National Osteoporosis Foundation as well as other organizations, that if a woman reaches the age of 65, she definitely needs her first test if she hasn't already had one. Men need a first bone density test at age 70 to sort out where they are. Now, people may need the test at an earlier age, and this is dependent on the presence of certain risk factors. If a 50 or 55-year-old has risk factors such as a mother or father who broke a hip, if this is an individual who's a heavy smoker or who drinks more than three alcoholic drinks a day, if this is somebody with one of several medications aboard, such as cortisone or prednisone, there are a lot of others on the list, or has a medical condition associated with problems with bones, it's very valuable to get that bone density test earlier, such as after the age of 50 or 52 in a, in a woman or a man with risk factors. Dr. Cyrus, can you speak about what FRAX is? FRAX was created by the World Health Organization in order to combine the results of bone density testing with a small list of well-validated risk factors for fracture in order to give an absolute 10-year probability uh, calculation of hip fracture risk as well as something called major osteoporotic fracture risk in individuals uh, who are over the age of 40. We, we use it primarily in postmenopausal women and men over the age of 50 to assess that fracture risk. Now, the group where we tend to use it in this country are those individuals whose bone densities show osteopenia, which is to say a T-score that's less than minus 1 at the spine or the hip, but better than minus 2.5. If the T-score is already minus 2.5, the patient has osteoporosis, and we would argue that that individual needs to be treated. But if the patient has osteopenia, sometimes that's 
prediction of a low risk, but sometimes it's prediction of a high risk, especially in older individuals with other risk factors. So FRAX gives you the chance to plug a few simple things into a computer program and get a 10-year probability, and if you exceed certain cut points, the indication is to treat that patient to lower fracture risk. And where can a clinician find this FRAX algorithm? Is it online? FRAX is all over the place. You can get an app for your smartphone. You can certainly go online and get it free of charge. If you Google FRAX, it'll send, uh, FRAX, excuse me, if you Google FRAX, F-R-A-X, it'll send you to the World Health Organization website where they have FRAX played out for you. And you'll notice that it's available for numerous countries. You obviously pick North America, then you pick the United States if that's where you are, and you get right into the algorithm where you enter height and weight, which automatically get converted into kilograms and centimeters, and then you answer some yes-no questions. FRAX is not perfect. It's a way of making an estimate of risk. And uh, one of the problems with FRAX is that it doesn't, for example, have as a risk factor falls. So if you've got somebody who's 79 years old and has a neurological problem or someone who falls a great deal, and when you do the FRAX calculation, it's borderline as to whether or not to treat, you might say, well, I know some other things about this patient from the medical history that are very important, and you might decide to treat. It's not something that compels you to treat or to not treat. You're still supposed to use your good clinical judgment, but at least it gives you a rough sense of whether somebody's at risk or not. It's probably most helpful in a younger postmenopausal woman who, let's say, has a T-score of minus 2.2 at the femoral neck and her other scores are better, uh, if she's in her early 50s and she has no other risk factors, FRAX will tell you that she's at relatively low risk for fracture in the next 10 years. And this is somebody you might want to reassure, but remember to reassess. An older individual with the same T-score might actually be at high risk for fracture and needs treatment. So once you have the bone density results as well as the FRAX results, how do you decide who to treat? How do you interpret those results? There are some wonderful guidelines from the National Osteoporosis Foundation, and you can Google, well, you don't have to Google, you can go to www.nof.org and click on their guideline document, which is a really useful uh, document which gives some very good guidance on when NOF thinks you should be treating patients. First of all, if an individual who is a postmenopausal woman or a man over 50 has a T-score at either the spine or the hip, at either hip site, if that score is minus 2.5 or below, the definition is the patient has osteoporosis and you should treat. A second indication for treatment would be an individual who has had a hip or a vertebral fracture. Either of those makes a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis, and the NOF guide recommends that that person be treated. This also brings up the point that when you evaluate someone, especially somebody a little bit older, one of the things you want to do when you do your bone density test is get a vertebral fracture assessment, something you can get on the DEXA machine, which is a lateral shot of the vertebrae, because if you pick up a prior compression fracture at the spine, where you, which you think may be related to low bone mass, that is a very important finding because, as I said, it confers a diagnosis of osteoporosis and you should treat that person. The third category for whom treatment is indicated would be someone where when you do your FRAX calculation, you discover that there is a 10-year probability of hip fracture of 3% or greater or a 10-year probability of major fracture that is 20% or greater. Either of those, the NOF believes, is an indication for medical treatment. If you are just tuning in, this is Dr. Prathima Seti, and I am here with Dr. Ethel Cyrus. We are discussing the bare bones of osteoporosis management. 
And what do you use for your first line of treatment? I think the first line of treatment is really going to depend a lot on the patient. If an individual has low bone mass at the spine or very low bone mass at the spine, it's osteoporosis, and the patient is not at high risk for hip fracture because the T-scores at the hip are pretty good, something like raloxifene can be an excellent first choice. In fact, if the patient is early menopausal and you're going to put that patient on estrogen, the estrogen is a very good way of preventing bone loss and protecting against spine fractures, as would raloxifene. For many patients, we do opt initially to go with a bisphosphonate agent, and there are four of them. There are, uh, there are four drugs. There's alendronate, risedronate, abandronate, and zoledronate, or zoledronic acid. Zoledronate is given intravenously. Abandronate is either orally once a month or quarterly intravenously. The other two drugs, alendronate and risedronate, can be given as uh, tablets, either weekly or in the case of uh, the various risedronate compounds, monthly. These are agents which you can use for three to five years, we believe that they are generally pretty well tolerated. The main side effect might be some upper GI distress in some patients, in which case you would switch to the IV. Uh, and after three to five years, you certainly would reassess the patient. If the patient remains at high risk, if the patient continues to have osteoporotic scores, you might give a brief holiday and then continue for another five years or so of treatment with the orals. With the IV zoledronate, we often give three annual infusions sometimes followed by a holiday, but if there is still high risk, up to six infusions can be given, and then you would monitor the patient. The key is you have to periodically reassess and make decisions about whether to continue treatment, give a brief period off if it's a bisphosphonate that you're using because the drugs linger for a while after you stop them, or whether you need to go back to such an agent. If you give somebody five years of a bisphosphonate and then say goodbye and good luck when they show up, six, seven years later, the bone density may have again dropped to dangerous levels. And why do you stop after five years with the bisphosphonate? What are the risks associated with that? Well, bisphosphonates are rarely associated, and I want to underscore the word rarely, with two bad side effects. One is osteonecrosis of the jaw, which we virtually, I mean in real life, very, very rarely see with oral bisphosphonates, even with the IV. Um, the other side effect is something called an atypical femur fracture, which may, may, and I want to underscore may, rarely cause uh, trouble for somebody on prolonged bisphosphonate therapy. Now, I didn't get to finish the other drug options. Uh, there's a drug called denosumab, which is a twice-a-year injection, very effective therapy for people at high risk for fracture, and it contains the same warnings in terms of atypical fracture of the femur and osteonecrosis of the jaw in its product label. These are all the anti-bone resorbing drugs. There's another drug called teriparatide, which is the only anabolic drug that we have currently. It's a drug that stimulates bone formation. This is a daily self-injection for 18 to 24 months. It's an analog of uh, parathyroid hormone. It stimulates bone formation, and you would use this in somebody at very high risk for fracture with very, very low BMD initially in order to stimulate some bone formation. And then you have to lock it in with one of the anti-resorptive drugs. So we have a wide range of drugs. The most commonly used ones remain the bisphosphonates, but there are lots of people for whom one of the other options is a better choice, and you have to make your own judgments about when to use which agent. And how do you follow these uh, patients on bisphosphonates or therapy? Do you check the bone density every two years, or what's your recommendations with that? I think whenever you initiate therapy, you probably ought to, if you can get it done without you know, reimbursement issues, get a follow-up bone density a year later. 
After that, every one to two years, again, depending on the severity of the condition, depending on whether the patient is having difficulties, you want to have a sense with the anti-resorbing drugs that the bone density is stable with, or, or maybe a little bit higher. With, you don't have to see an elevation with bisphosphonates. You just want to see that it's not going down. If it goes up a little bit, that's fine. It may go up a bit and then level off. I should comment that with denosumab, in a treatment-naive patient who gets denosumab, you actually may see a continuing rising BMD uh, of several percentage points for as long as you give the drug. And with teriparatide, you may well see an increase in bone density. We sometimes use with the teriparatide patients a biochemical marker called P1NP, which is a commercially available biochemical marker, to tell us that there is evidence of bone formation going on. And you can get that test within a couple of months of initiating teriparatide, having had a baseline prior to the first dose. And you very often see a, a marked increase in P1NP, and early on it tells you that something is likely to happen. I sometimes use the bone resorption marker, serum CT-lopeptide, or CTX, uh, when I have stopped therapy and I want to figure out when I may need to resume therapy, again, with bisphosphonates, when you stop after giving it for maybe five years, you usually have a period of six to 12 months, maybe even as long as two years, depending on the agent, when the drug will still have an effect and then it wears off. With resedronate and ibandronate, it may wear off within six to 12 months. With the other two bisphosphonates, you may get a year or two before the CTX starts to rise. One other point is that if you stop estrogen or if you stop raloxifene or if you stop denosumab, you will very quickly resume bone loss, whereas with the bisphosphonates, there's a delay. With teriparatide, if you don't follow that agent with an anti-bone resorbing drug such as a bisphosphonate or raloxifene or denosumab, if you don't do that, you will lose what you gained from the teriparatide. Those are important things to remember. Thank you so much, Dr. Sirius. Do you have any final thoughts on um, osteoporosis management and some key points that you want to point out to our uh, listeners? We have 2 million fractures in the United States every year in older people. That's 2 million too many. They cost a fortune, and they make people's lives quite miserable in many cases. Think about evaluating patients. It's talking to patients. It's collecting risk factors. It's making judgments about doing a bone density test. It's making judgments about treating based upon the current guidelines and encouraging adherence. You also have to remember that people need enough calcium and adequate amounts of vitamin D, and all of these are in the guideline of the NOF as to how much. And finally, fall risk reduction is very, very important because there are a whole bunch of bones that may be weak, but they won't break unless you fall on them. So trying your best to do all of these things uh, will make a real difference not only in individual patients' lives, which is why we do what we do, but it'll also save the healthcare system a lot of money. Thank you so much, Dr. Cyrus, for being with us today and for sharing with us your thoughts on this important topic. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast. Thank you for listening.